Achieving a gorgeous grin from home isn't a total mystery with Byteclear aligners. Just don't be surprised if all of your sleuthing friends start asking, what's your secret? Begin by ordering your at-home impression kit today for only $14.95. Byteclear aligners are doctor-directed and delivered to your door. Treatment costs thousands less than braces. Plus, they offer flexible financing, accept eligible insurance, and you can pay with your HSA FSA. Get 80% off your impression kit when you use code WONDERY at That's Byte.com. That's B-Y-T-E dot Start your confidence journey today with Byte. I'm Josh Hammer. Welcome back. So I want to focus a lot on the American home front a little later in the episode, but the big news this week was actually from our allies across the pond. I'm talking, of course, about the ascension to the prime minister position of Liz Truss and even more headline grabbing, of course, the sad passing away of Queen Elizabeth II at the age of 96. So just kind of put my cards on, on the table here. I'm very much an Anglophile by nature. I, I think it would be accurate to say that my kind of view of the world, my view of conservatism is very much shaped by kind of a centuries-long reverence, you might even say, for the Anglo-American tradition. I'm a research fellow at the Edmund Burke Foundation, which puts on the National Conservatism Conference, which is actually being held as this podcast is being released in Miami, Florida. Uh, Edmund Burke, of course, being the 18th century founder of Anglo-American conservatism. So I could go on and on here. There's really no need to bore you with the details. But I actually, even in college, I spent a semester studying in London. I lived in London for three months. I was uh, enrolled at University College London. Really just have such fond memories of trips to Buckingham Palace, Windsor Castle, really all throughout England and, and the broader UK to a slightly lesser extent. So that's my background. So this was a huge, huge week. Obviously, sad news. Sad news for the people of Britain. Sad news for the Commonwealth, formerly known as the British Empire. And sad news, really, I think, for the Queen's followers and people who just really respected her all throughout the world. It's really kind of tragic how quickly her descent actually happened. So Liz Truss, who won a battle with Rishi Sunak within Britain's Conservative Party, to become the prime minister, she formally ascended to the prime minister position last Tuesday. It was two days later that the queen passed away. Now, the queen was there when Liz Truss became prime minister. You had a few people kind of chattering about this. So traditionally speaking, the prime minister would go to Buckingham Palace to get the Queen's blessing to become Prime Minister, and then we'll go across London to 10 Downing Street to kind of be, you know, formally sworn in and give your first address. So on Tuesday, Liz Truss actually flew up to, to Balmoral Castle in Scotland, which is where the royal family spends a lot of their summer. And you had some people, I think, in the British chattering class, even then kind of saying, hmm, this is contrary to tradition. If there's one thing that the Brits and the English love in particular, of course, it is tradition. So that definitely raised some eyebrows. But her, her, her descent and ultimately passing away a mere two days later really did seem to happen quite quickly. Just a quick word on Queen Elizabeth II. Again, she, she served on the throne for 70 years. 70 years. She's the longest serving monarch in the history of the United Kingdom, and they've had, a lot, they've had a lot of monarchs, believe it or not. To give you just one idea, I think I tweeted this out, she ascended to the throne in 1952. She was in her mid-20s at the time. 1952 was one year 
before an iconic Englishman, Ian Fleming, wrote his first James Bond novel, Casino Royale. That, was, that itself was nine years before Sean Connery first debuted as James Bond on the silver screen, of course, in 1962's Dr. No. Side note, another one of my weird kind of Anglophile fetishes is I'm actually like a huge James Bond nerd. I can do all the movies, the actors, all of that stuff. I'm not going to bore you with, with that stuff. But that's just to say that she has been there for, she, or she was there for a very long time. You know, I saw someone that I follow who, who lives in Israel tweet that the year that she ascended to the throne, David Ben-Gurion was still the prime minister of Israel. David Ben-Gurion was the founding father of Israel. I mean, he was literally the one who was there when Israel declared its independence in 1948. He's the George Washington of Israel, and he was the prime minister when the queen ascended to the throne. So what a remarkable life, remarkable woman. I mean, she stood, I think, for for nation, for God. She was a, she was a pious, devout Christian by all accounts. She actually used to watch uh, Billy Graham's sermons. She would frequently invite Billy Graham to come over to join her in Buckingham Palace. And she oversaw relative peace and stability, really, as far as the history of the UK is concerned, those 70 years, beginning, of course, seven years after the defeat of Nazi Germany in 1945, and there was the Cold War, of course, but, and, you know, and uh, Britain later under the Prime Minister got into Tony Blair, subsequently joined George W. Bush in Iraq and various other neoconservative follies, but Relatively speaking, that was a fairly peaceful 70 years. I mean, this was not kind of the Hundred Years' War from 600 years ago, whatever, when England and France were kind of warring every day. She really just in many ways, I think, stood for a lot of values that have just simply gone by the wayside, some of which I already alluded to, that being nation, God, family. I mean, really kind of just a true end of an era. I mean, this woman stood for values that today are oftentimes dismissed as hidebound, reactionary, extremist, traditionalist, blah, 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 whatever. But she was the living embodiment of that. Of course, now her son, Charles, becomes the oldest new king in British history. He's into his 70s already at the time he becomes king. We'll see how long Charles lasts. If, uh, you know, His son, William, will be next in line. But the thing that I really want to talk about here when it comes to the queen... We're talking about a monarchy. Now, we're talking about a monarchy, obviously, that was anathema to the views, I think, of the American founders. You don't have to read a whole lot. You can just look at the Declaration of Independence in 1776 itself. And we all remember the famous first paragraph or two with its very lofty language about we, we hold these truths to be self-evident. But later on the document, if you actually read the full text of the Declaration, which you certainly should do if you have not done so, they're actually talking about grievances against King George III. So to an extent, anti-monarchy sentiment is quite literally ingrained in the DNA. You know, over the course of history, America and the UK became staunch allies. That didn't necessarily have to be the case. If you really go back to the 18th century, France, actually England's historic arch rival was America's first ally. But this anti-monarchy sentiment was ingrained in the American founding, which made it, at least from my perspective, a little curious that President Biden and the Biden administration declared that the flags in Washington, D.C. be flown at half-mast. Again, I say that as, as a staunch Anglophile and, a, and someone who considers the U.K. to be one of, if not the greatest, friend of the U.S., but that struck me as, as, as a little odd. But the thing that I really want to talk to you for a few minutes about, we've seen an, an outpouring of people in the aftermath of the death 
of the queen just utterly decrying the royal family, just utterly decrying monarchy. What is this like outdated, this outmoded system? Well, look, two things can be true at once. Sometimes a situation calls for nuance. Monarchy is indeed anathema to the American conception of lowercase r Republican self-governance. That sentiment weaves its way. It is imbued in all of our founding era texts, the Declaration, our Constitution, which, of course, has this wonderful, elaborate system of separation of powers between the legislative, the executive, and the judicial branch to say nothing of federalism and dual spheres of sovereignty between the national and state government. So monarchy is certainly anathema to the United States. But, and here's the big but, the big but is that Madisonian, Jeffersonian, Washingtonian democracy, the likes of which we ratified with the Constitution in the 1780s, that, that is the best fit for the United States. It is a wonderful, wonderful document. But the idea that we should be so myopic as to assume that every country and every people and every civilization all around the world, no matter what their national religious, familial, customs, traditions, and so forth may be. The idea that our Constitution is the single unambiguous best fit for everyone? Well, that is folly. That is exactly the sort of neoconservative, neoliberal folly that results ultimately, if taken to its logical conclusion, in the sort of Bush-era democracy promotion, which has been thoroughly discredited, of course, by the United States' blunders in places like Iraq and Afghanistan. This really actually is kind of the same sentiment that George W. Bush was getting at in his second inaugural address when he was speaking of the so-called freedom agenda. Now, obviously, he was there talking about places like Afghanistan, third world Sharia, backwater hellholes. He wasn't talking about a first world civilized monarchy like the UK, but it's the same idea. It's the same sentiment that people everywhere deserve to be free and that we are the sole conception of what it being free properly is. That's total hogwash. That's total hogwash. The Queen's approval rating is like 79 positive points in favor. Britons and the world, for that matter, are not neutral on Queen Elizabeth II. They like her. What's more, reputable public polling in the UK consistently shows that the British people support the monarchy, which this should be obvious, but in case it's not, is a largely symbolic figurehead at this point. The queen is not actually, or now the king, is not actually really doing day-to-day -day governance over in the UK. It's obviously coming from parliament and the prime minister and so forth. She's really just a symbolic figurehead. So the idea that American liberals and progressives in particular are just freaking out in the aftermath of the passing of this 96-year-old 70-years-on-the-throne icon because monarchy is oppressive, patriarchal, it's garbage, blah, 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 blah. I mean, give me a break, people. Again, the British people, and again, we're talking here about a first world civilization. The British people support the monarchy. Everyone else can just shut the hell up about it. Let them do what they want to do. If they want to have a symbolic monarchy, who the hell cares? Let's take it to a quick commercial break. We'll be right back with you. Thank you. 
That's not just the sound of that first sip of Morning Joe. It's the sound of someone shopping for a car on Carvana from the comfort of home. That's a good blend. It's time to take it easy, like answering some easy questions to get pre-qualified for a car in minutes. Talk about starting the morning right. Just like customizing your terms so your car fits your budget. Mm, mm, mm. Visit Carvana.com or download the app to experience car shopping the way it should be. Convenient. Comfortable. Ah. So again, it was only two days before Queen Elizabeth II passed away that Liz Truss, the Conservative Party's nominee to be Prime Minister of the United Kingdom, flew up from London to Balmoral Castle in Scotland to formally ascend the Prime Minister position. She was there to get the blessing, of course, of the departed Queen Elizabeth II. There's a lot to be said about the Conservative Party, and I don't have a whole lot of positive things to say about it. So Liz Truss's predecessor, Boris Johnson, was also a conservative. The the nickname for that, the moniker in the UK, is they call them Tories. It's kind of a reference to an older philosophy, really going back to 19th century British statesman Benjamin Disraeli, was probably the the most iconic conservative in many ways in British in modern British history, I should say, at least in the aftermath of Edmund Burke. You can really kind of trace a direct line in many ways from the thought of Edmund Burke through Benjamin Disraeli through ultimately Winston Churchill, who himself, of course, was a card-carrying member of the Conservative Party. Churchill, of course, led the Brits to victory in World War II alongside the U.S. and, and, and all that. So the Conservative Party, historically speaking, was actually conservative in many ways. Churchill was a was a good embodiment of this, but at some point, at some point, uh, it's it's difficult to pinpoint exactly when. Certainly, at least by the time that David Cameron became the Prime Minister of the UK, within the past ten to twelve years or so, David Cameron was the Prime Minister over there uh, during the Barack Obama presidency. He was really by that time just a staunch pro European Union, pro Europe integrationist, a, a, a globalist is kind of the term that you might say here in the U.S. He was socially liberal. He came out in support of, of same-sex marriage. Britain obviously has also long had the NHS, socialized health care over there. But from David Cameron to Boris Johnson to now Liz Truss, there's not a whole lot to be particularly optimistic about from a conservative perspective. So I can't say I'm particularly optimistic about Liz Truss. I wanted to, I kind of just wanted to get a word in about her. We're focusing here mostly on the Queen. I want to get just a, one word in about Liz Truss. It's hard to be too optimistic about her. She's she she said some good things. She's now apparently a, a staunch proponent or defender of Brexit, which of course is the UK's very very messy separation from the European Union. It was a really kind of chaotic process over the course of years and years. The bureaucracy, their equivalent of the deep state, deeply, deeply opposed Brexit, tried to undermine it at effectively every turn. So she's kind of a late convert on that issue. She was what the Brits called a remainer prior to that seminal 2016 vote. She was previously in favor of the the UK remaining in the EU. But in any event, we wish Liz Truss a lot of success. We obviously value the UK as a staunch ally and we wish her success, but it's difficult to be particularly optimistic. But I, I want to transition now and just talk about what's actually happening here on the home front. You guys are probably Britished out at this point. So there's, there's a lot happening on the home front. On the home front. That's the short of it. A lot of it 
unfortunately, is not particularly good. So I want to talk about two things in particular. I've focused my last two columns on what I really see as the disintegration of the American Republic into a two-tiered abyss. Really, I mean, there is one tier, there is the ruling class, there is the the neoliberals, the Acela Corridor, the New York, Washington, D.C. groupthink consensus. Even a lot of capital R Republicans are part of this kind of uniparty, unibrow, neoliberal ruling class regime. And just to kind of clarify what I'm talking about here, I'm talking about the kind of folks who have the quote-unquote polite political beliefs, who don't have an issue with the chemical castration of children, who don't have an issue with their fourth or fifth grader going to school and because he or she happens to be white, is told that he or she is somehow responsible for systemic racism, that their ancestors committed unspeakable evils, even if their ancestors moved here 10, 15 years ago. That's the ruling class. The ruling class are the people who go to all the right universities, have the right diplomas, the right degrees. It doesn't ultimately matter which party you vote for. If you think that your opinion matters more than any other American who is necessarily equally sovereign under this we the people conception of lowercase r Republican self-governance that we have, which is obviously in contrast to the British conception to kind of tie these two together. If you hold those beliefs, then you are part of the ruling class. The other half of society is what Hillary Clinton would refer to as the deplorables. These are people who tend to have beliefs that are a little less favorable at the proverbial Georgetown cocktail parties on the Upper East Side, hoity-toity club membership parties. These are the people who actually think, for example, that our immigration regime right now is insane, that we need a secure border, that we need fewer immigrants and to focus on assimilating. These are the people who are pro-life or at a bare minimum don't think that abortion should be legal when, for example, an unborn child can feel pain in the womb. So you get the idea here. And over the past few years, really since, at least really since Trump took office and the entire deep state collusion with the media and the Democratic Party kind of went into high gear, I'm talking here, of course, about the Russian collusion delusion, at least since that, We've seen this emergence of this two-tiered society. But it's really gotten a heck of a lot worse over the past year and a half since Joe Biden took office. First of all, recall what Joe Biden said on the campaign trail. He said that he was a great unifier of the body politic. That's what he ran on. He ran as a unifier, as someone who would be a stark contrast with his opponent in the 2020 election, Donald Trump, who he, who he perceived to be extremely flippant, extremely divisive. I, I'm not saying that Trump wasn't these things. Of course he was divisive. But what, what Biden purported, with a big emphasis here on purported, what he purported to run on was something along the lines, the sentiment from Lincoln's second inaugural address when he said, with malice toward none, with charity for all, with firmness and the right as God gives us to see the right, let us strive on to finish the work we are in to bind up the nation's wounds. That's the sentiment that Biden was getting at. I want to spend most of the rest of our time here talking about how much he has failed, utterly failed to 
uphold that sentiment or get anywhere remotely close to it. But let's take it to a quick break. We'll be right back and we're going to unpack that for you. Stay with us. Delve into the shadows of the mind with Sleeping Dogs, a gripping murder mystery starring Academy Award winner Russell Crowe. Now available on digital. Crow portrays an ex-homicide detective, unraveling a brutal murder he can't recall. Uncovering secrets from his past, he learns a chilling truth. It's best to let sleeping dogs lie. Visit sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery to watch Sleeping Dogs, now on digital. That's sleepingdogsmovie.com slash Wondery. So the Biden administration's willful, deliberate taking of America into this two-tiered system of justice, this two-tiered civilization, this two-tiered society in general, to an extent it actually starts even before Biden was president. To an extent it actually starts on January 6, 2021. Now, January 6 was a bad day. I have said that repeatedly. That's been my stance ever since it happened. It was a bad day. But And here is the but. It was obvious to a lot of folks fairly early on that the incoming and then new president, that being Joe Biden and his party, would seek to opportunistically seize upon what happened on January 6th as a beachhead to launch a broader full frontal assault on Trump supporters, on conservatives, on Republicans. This was really made obvious at least as early as last summer, the summer of 2021. At that time, Biden's National Security Council released this fairly harrowing pamphlet inaugurating what it referred to as a, quote, national strategy for countering domestic terrorism. Now, again, in the abstract, I mean, who could in the right mind oppose an administration that is trying to crack down on domestic terrorism. I mean, of course, we everyone in the right mind opposes domestic terrorism. The problem is what it was focusing on. It was focusing on ginned up hysteria that January 6th was something that it was not, that it was something other than a spontaneous uproar, that it was this planned coup d'etat, insurrection, and so forth. It was focusing fairly exclusively on the threat of white supremacy to the exclusion, of course, of other forms of supremacy and other forms of violence. There was just a lot wrong with this document. It also, and this was foreshadowing what we're about to get to when it comes to big tech, that document also had some very, very, very tough language on cracking down on quote unquote, incitement to violence. Now, incitement to violence does remain a black letter crime on the books in most jurisdictions. But after the 1969 U.S. Supreme Court case Brandenburg Brandenburg versus Ohio, there was an extremely high bar for prosecuting incitement to violence. In the Brandenburg case, the court said, quote, mere advocacy cannot be prosecuted. Rather, only speech, quote, directed to inciting or producing imminent lawless action and, quote, 
likely to incite or produce such action is actually actionable. For the folks who think that Donald Trump is, is somehow guilty of, of a crime, of incitement to violence on January 6th, I, I would point you directly to the Brandenburg case. It seems to me absolutely ludicrous to maintain that. So that was there in the summer of 2021. Well, here's what else we now know was happening in the summer of 2021. A lot of us suspected this, by the way. Well, in July 2021, then White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki, at least once or twice that I can vividly recall, started openly bragging to the press corps, to the insular group of predominant buffoons known as the Washington Press Corps. She starts bragging to them about the extent to which she is cracking down on so-called misinformation on the social media platforms. Someone at the New York Post, I think it was, wrote a good op-ed on this at the time. Can't remember the author. But she was fairly nakedly saying, if you were, if you were paying close attention, if you were paying close attention, you could hear her saying that they were working with Mark Zuckerberg, with then-Twitter CEO Jack Dorsey, with Google, to root out COVID quote-unquote misinformation pertaining to vaccines, pertaining to masking, pertaining to the efficacy of lockdowns, of that. Well, as it turns out, as the case may be, we now know that that was the case. Because there's a very interesting lawsuit going on right now between the states of Missouri and Louisiana. The attorneys general of those states, Eric Schmidt from Missouri, who's actually now the U.S. Senate candidate there in Missouri, as well as his Louisiana colleague, Jeff Landry, they have filed a suit alleging that various Biden administration officials have been colluding with the so-called, quote-unquote, private oligarchs of big tech of Silicon Valley. And as Attorney General Schmidt released on Twitter about a week and a half ago, he had this must-read Twitter thread. Can not encourage you enough to check this out. He released documents that they have acquired from discovery and subpoena over the course of this lawsuit. They have the names redacted, of course, but the documents clearly show that exact same thing that I just described happening. There are any number, in fact, of Biden administration departments, the Treasury, HHS, CDC, the White House itself, that were all in fairly regular communication with some combination of Google, Facebook, and Twitter. In fact, earlier last month, Vivek Ramaswamy and Jed Rubenfeld had a great piece at the Wall Street Journal where they showed in clear and convincing fashion that the Biden administration was directly complicit in the full-on deplatforming, unpersoning of Alex Berenson from Twitter. Alex Berenson being one of the Biden regime's most outspoken skeptics of the groupthink pertaining to COVID and vaxes and all of that stuff. So what does that mean? What does that mean? Well, it's not good. It means that the Biden administration is doing what a lot of big tech skeptics have for years thought that the Democratic Party elites were doing, which is 
de facto commandeering of these putatively private companies to do its agenda for them. You know, to an extent, actually, because the big tech topic is a topic that I've written and spoken on at length. To an extent, this is actually really just consistent with the letter of the law of Section 230, which is the much discussed and much debated big tech statute that was passed as part of the Communications Decency Act of 1996. If you look at what Section 230 did, Section 230, which passed Congress and was signed into law by then-President Bill Clinton, Section 230 provided what it referred to as, quote-unquote, interactive computer services with large-scale sweeping immunity to moderate content as they see fit, including, including content that would be constitutionally permissible if it were said on a sidewalk. By the way, that in and of itself is actually unconstitutional. The Supreme Court has very clearly said, especially in a case called Harrison versus Norwood from the early 1970s, the court said that is, quote, axiomatic. It is self-evident that you cannot immunize others to do that which you cannot itself do. So there's a strong argument that the entirety of Section 230 is unconstitutional. Nonetheless, that that is basically exactly what the Biden administration is doing here. That is what Attorneys General Schmidt of Missouri and Landry of Louisiana have uncovered. They have uncovered that these technology platforms are not private in any meaningful sense of the term. They are direct appendages of the state. And from my perspective, they have to be constitutionally treated and regulated as such. One possible idea for this is the idea of common carrier regulation, which got a lot of traction in U.S. circles when Justice Clarence Thomas, in a 12-page concurrence in an April 2021 case called Biden versus Knight First Amendment Institute, Justice Thomas, who is, I, I, I mean, he, he, he probably is the most conservative Supreme Court justice. It's either him or Sam Alito, kind of take your pick. In this concurrence, he basically suggested that common carrier regulation, which is the same way that we regulate the telephone companies, the same way that we regulate the ISPs, the internet service providers, it's for that matter, the same way that we regulate the railroads. Justice Thomas suggested that we should probably do the same thing for Facebook and perhaps other big tech companies. That is one idea that leaps off the page, that leaps off the page here as as something that that the right should coalesce around. The other idea, though, the other idea is the right has to continue to rethink, as it has done over the past few years, antitrust. For decades and decades, Republicans on antitrust, going back at least as far as the Reagan administration, I think basically took the view that there was no such thing as a bad merger because under kind of neoclassical economic theory, barriers to entry, if they're sufficiently low, you'll get competition, blah, blah, blah. The problem is multifold. One, the metastasis of the woke ideology unfortunately renders a lot of this economic theory of diminished significance. What I mean by that is that when all of the leading titans of a certain industry, whether it is the technology industry or the financial services industry, debanking, by the way, is very much already happening. It's the next deplatforming. You know, you could ask... Laura Loomer about PayPal, she's been banned. You remember the Canadian truckers were banned from GoFundMe? 
even lines of credit. Bank of America has stopped lending to to certain firearms manufacturers. They they announced that a few years ago. I think it was the aftermath of the Parkland, Florida shooting. At this point, antitrust should be viewed not necessarily as kind of an economic abstract debate. The debate now is less about economics. It's more about dehumanization. It's more about having basic access to the very means of a thriving civil society. But it's actually even worse than that, unfortunately, and that's going to bring us to Biden's horrific speech earlier this month in Philadelphia. But we're going to talk about that on the other side of a quick break. So I hope you stay with us. CarMax is putting peace of mind back in car shopping by putting you in the driver's seat to find a ride that's right for you. Because at CarMax, we believe you shouldn't just settle for a car. You should love your car. That's why every car we sell is CarMax certified quality so you can be sure with upfront pricing that's the same for every customer. So don't settle. Find love at first drive and start shopping now at CarMax.com. CarMax, the way car buying should be. So this two-tiered society that the big tech platforms debanking, that the various institutions of woke capital, which are almost unanimously in hock to this horrific, horrific ideology, that would be bad by itself. What makes it even worse and what makes it frankly even more terrifying is that the president of the United States himself is now fairly explicitly egging on his supporters, companies, individuals, institutions that support him to anathematize, to make enemies out of the deplorables. So that takes us, of course, to this loathsome, really, I mean loathsome speech earlier this month by the president of the United States, Joe Biden there in Philadelphia. Let's take a listen. Too much of what's happening in our country today is not normal. Donald Trump and the MAGA Republicans represent an extremism that threatens the very foundations of our republic. Now, I want to be very clear, very clear up front. Not every Republican, not even the majority of Republicans are MAGA Republicans. Not every Republican embraces their extreme ideology. I know, because I've been able to work with these mainstream Republicans. But there's no question that the Republican Party today is dominated, driven, and intimidated by Donald Trump and the MAGA Republicans. And that is a threat to this country. So there's a lot to be said about this. The first thing that has to be said, and it's a point that has been frequently made already, is who the hell thought that the backdrop to this speech was a good idea? He held the speech outside Independence Hall in Philadelphia, where they signed the Declaration of Independence, where those brave, brave men signed their lives, their fortunes, and their sacred honor. They knew that they were putting death warrants on their head from King George III. They did it anyway, because they believe so strongly in their, in their cause. Now, 200 
46 years later, if my quick math is correct, you have this buffoon, this doddering ignoramus, speaking there on a taxpayer-funded speech with the U.S. Marines there, with their bayonets in the background. He's pounding his fist. Pounding his fist. Independence Hall, by the way, is lit up in ruby red. Ruby red. This senile, nearly 80-year-old, craptastic of a president is standing there pounding his fist. The backdrop lit up in red, just like Berlin in 1936. This speech would have made Lenny Riefenstahl proud. Lenny Riefenstahl was the leading movie propagandist, the filmmaking propagandist for the Third Reich. This speech would have made her proud because there is this guy standing there trying to accuse his political opponents of effectively being subhuman, of being enemies. Now, in that clip you just heard, he does say in his extremely, extremely mild and qualified defense, he does say that he's, or he purports to say that he's not talking about all Republicans. He's just talking about quote-unquote MAGA Republicans. Okay, a few things on that. A few points to be said on that. One is, first of all, it must be said, this fixation on so-called MAGA Republicans is really bizarre. Donald Trump has not used the MAGA slogan during a campaign ubiquitously since the 2016 election. Recall when he ran for re-election in 2020. MAGA, you heard that at the rallies, sometimes from the people in the stands, but you also heard COG, Keep America Great. Because Make America Great Again with the 2016 slogan. Okay, more importantly, Donald Trump is not on the ballot. <laughs> He's not on the ballot. So this attempt by the incumbent president to talk on and on and on about a four-letter acronym associated with someone who hasn't been in power in two years, it really just bespeaks a certain level of desperation and a cognizance, a recognition that his own policies, his own agenda are so catastrophically unpopular that he is forced to kind of fabricate this, this opponent who doesn't exist, just drawn on a map and just run against this fabricated opponent. But more importantly, his qualifier doesn't hold. He purports to say he's running against just quote-unquote MAGA Republicans, again, whatever the hell that even is, with Donald Trump not on the ballot and only possibly the 2024 nominee. We certainly do not know that. But elsewhere in that same speech, he gave away the game. He's talking about what this allegedly extremist MAGA Republican philosophy is, and he, he considers something so much as supporting the right to life as opposing abortion, as making you an extremist. You know, it's worth noting that earlier in his Senate career, when he was a little more sane, Joe Biden, who I think still purports to be a Catholic, he actually opposed abortion. He wanted to overturn Roe versus Wade. If I recall, he actually publicly supported a constitutional amendment in the early 1980s to do exactly that. So, I mean, this guy is so full of you-know-what that it's not even worth talking about. I hope he's got a good proctologist to help him get out of that. But the point here is that he is only further entrenching this notion of a two-tiered system. This is the guy, the guy who's railing against so-called fascism. This is the dude who just broke 
two plus centuries of norms to send out his FBI, his law enforcement apparatus, to conduct a pre-dawn raid on the private residence of the very guy he just defeated at the ballot box and may well face again. Of course, those same feds, those same G-men were sniffing around Melania Trump's panties. They confiscated Donald Trump's passports, apparently. And this guy has the gumption to accuse his political opponents of quote-unquote semi-fascism? The dude who has the Nazi-esque speech pounding his fist, yelling at the other side, who conducted that kind of raid? This is very dangerous. This is what I have to come back to. This is dangerous stuff. This deliberate otherizing of half the citizenry, it does not end well. You do not have to spend a lot of time thumbing your way through the history textbooks of Western civilization to see where this ends. It does not end well, and tragically sometimes, it ends in great bloodshed. It just does. This is real fire that Joe Biden is playing with right now. This is real fire that Joe Biden, the Democratic Party, and their allies, their putatively private allies in big tech and financial services and all these other woke capital institutions, they are playing with fire. Unfortunately, I don't necessarily claim to have a panacea here. The ballot box, of course, is the most obvious remedy. I do hope that Republicans retake control of Congress here in November, and we, at that point, would look ahead to 2024. But at a bare minimum, at a bare minimum, we have to get the civil society aspect of this right, even if we do not control the federal government, even if we do not control the White House. And again, that means things like common carry regulation. That means things like antitrust. Even if these ideas would have been scoffed at, you know, as recently as 15, 20 years ago when free market fundamentalism kind of reigned supreme, we have to be more pragmatic about the threat of woke capital. Again, we are not talking here about abstract abstract macroeconomic debates. We're talking here about the otherizing and ultimately dehumanizing of half the citizenry. So we have to be willing to grapple with the magnitude of the threat that we are facing right now. It's bad. It's really bad. I have no particular pleasure. It doesn't, doesn't bring me great joy to describe to you how bad it is. But the first thing before climbing our way out of this mess is to recognize the state that we are in. Fortunately, I continue to be optimistic about how this is going to all unfold in November. But until then, I'm Josh Hammer. We'll see you next time. <music>